Please do join me now in turning with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Let's not neglect going to the Lord and asking for his help as we go to his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you unstop our deaf ears to hear your truth? Would you open our blind eyes to see your glory? Would you open our ignorant minds so that we could receive knowledge of you and your ways? And Father, would you open our hearts Change them. Enable us to embrace Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. Oh Lord, we want to see Jesus. And we thank you for your word. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Last week, We were in Ephesus, and things in that power encounter ended in this way. We read in verse 20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What a great way to sum up the almighty power of God as we saw it last week over the wiles of Satan, over ignorance and unbelief. The word continued to increase. Well, now Luke's going to give us an overview, an outline for the remainder of Acts. He's going to give us Paul's travel plans. Uh, Join with me as I read Acts 21 excuse me, of Acts 19, verses 21 and 22. Now, after these events, those would be the events Luke just described, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So here, Paul is in his third missionary journey, and he plans to do what he often does, go back and revisit the churches that have been established in Macedonia and Achaia. And he plans to return to Jerusalem. It sounds like he's going to be accompanying an offering that goes back. But you'll see something new. He says this, I must also see Rome. Now, I know people who... um, say to me, I want to go to Washington, D.C., I want to go to New York, I want to go to Hawaii, I've got to see Paris, I've got to see Athens. You know, that's that's a human desire. But the language here that Paul says is, I must, it's a almost a divine imperative, I must also see Rome. And it's an echo of Luke in his earlier volume talking about Jesus setting his sights on Jerusalem. That Jesus knew he had to go to Jerusalem, he had to die, he had to suffer. Jesus was purposeful to go to Jerusalem. And now Paul is going to purpose to go to Rome. And you know how Acts ends. He ends up there as the book ends. 
Now, in a moment, I'm going to read, we're going to read through um, the remainder of Acts 19, verses 23 through 41 in kind of three parts. But one of the things I think we'll notice is where is God in verses 23 through 41? Where is God? Now, we know, as we've already seen when we talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit, that the believer is always in the presence of a powerful person. And we know from Scripture, there's no way to be away from the presence of the Lord. But if we look closely at these verses, God appears to not be there. Now, some of you know your Bibles. I would hope all of us are knowing our Bibles more and more as we spend time getting to know God through how he reveals himself to us. But there's not only another lengthy narrative in the Bible where God appears to be absent. There's an entire book in the Bible where the covenant name of God is not mentioned. Does anybody remember where that is? Yeah, it's the book of Esther. The book of Esther. And yet, we see in the narrative account of Esther that God preserved his people, the Jews, when they were threatened. Remember? Haman had plans, but those plans ended up coming down on his own head. God preserved his people. Esther was put there for such a time as this, we read. Her cousin Mordecai worked with Esther. Esther became queen was able to allow the Jews to defend themselves. The Jews were not extinguished. The seed was preserved. And yet, in the entire book of Esther, you can't point to any verse and say, well, there's God. But just as Rob read, just because you kind of don't see him, doesn't mean he's not working. God preserved his people, the Jews, when they were threatened. And we will see today that God protects his people in surprising ways. He, as we just sang, moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Now, interestingly, even though God's name is not mentioned in this narrative account, we will come to know the name of the person who leads an attack on God's people, on the church. Yet the names of the people that God will use to protect his people remain unknown, at least to us. Luke's narrative account of the riot in Ephesus can be seen, I believe, as a three-act play, each act oriented around people. Two individuals, one at the beginning, one at the end, and a group of people in the middle. In Act 1, there's a craftsman. And in Act 2, excuse me, Act 3, there's a city clerk. And in the middle, in Act 2, there's a crowd of confused people. So what we have before us is the setup, the confrontation, and the resolution. So now let's watch the play and make some observations as to what's taking place on stage. Join with me as I read verses 23 through 27. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. 
For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. We're in Ephesus, and Ephesus is dominated by this temple, this temple of Artemis. It was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's massive. Its dimensions are 220 feet by 425 feet and 60 feet high. It is four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It's an object of religious pilgrimage. It's, it's kind of a destination. It's a worship center. You know, some churches call their sanctuaries worship centers. It's a, it's a massive worship center. And interestingly, it's also a bank, a depository of funds coming and going. And you will already see that Demetrius speaks of the wealth involved in this. About that time, there arose no little disturbance. Uh, Luke sometimes is the master of understatement. No little disturbance. We will see it is a big disturbance. It is, uh, as we read in verse uh, 1 of chapter 20, after the uproar ceased. Indeed, it is a big disturbance. And notice it's referred to concerning the way. The way. The Christian movement. It's referred to other elsewhere sometimes as the way, the the, the way of life, it's, it's a reminder to us that it's gospel doctrine and it's gospel culture. We are to preach and proclaim the gospel and doctrine and we are to embody gospel culture. Uh, let's, let's go back for a moment to, to Galatians 2. Remember, there's this interesting scene where Paul opposes Peter. Now, Paul and Peter had the same doctrine. They agreed. They both had the same, as it were, confession of faith. But Paul observed something about Peter that his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so it's, it's not so much what we will see. It is doctrine that upsets the pagan world, but it's, it's the life of a Christian. You know what, what happened earlier? In early 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. You see, these people are now believers. They're confessing believers, but it's changing their life. They're, they're, they're leaving the old and they're embracing the new. And so Luke knew what he was doing when he's speaking of a disturbance concerning the way. 
gospel doctrine and gospel culture tied together, distinct as it were, but inseparable. And we see Demetrius, this named man, this named agitator, instigator, this silversmith who's kind of head of the, um, the, uh, the guild. He's a skilled demagogue because he has a speech in which he, he, he stirs up the crowd. Uh, he, he's probably reacting to the teaching of Paul. Now, we know in Acts 17, Paul's in Athens, right? In the Areopagus, and he's, he's talking about idols and uh, kind of showing the illogic of, of pagans and thinking that um, of how idols, who makes idols and who makes them, and he connects dots and, and helps them see and remember the response was some wanted to hear some believed some wanted to hear more and, and, and some just refused and rejected. So most likely, even though we don't read it, most likely Paul is preaching the same thing in Ephesus about idolatry because this city is dominated by this temple. Now if you listened when we read earlier in this speech Men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth, our wealth. I mean, we could stop there because that's what's the underlying issue, isn't it? You know what U.S. attorneys do? They follow the money, right? They hire the investigators. What does the FBI do? It follows the money. Provides a great trail, as it were, to the scene of the crime. It's, it's, it's going to be about money. It's purely economic, but to stir up opposition, because they don't want to be thought of as just purely greedy, no. To, to stir up opposition to, to uh, Paul, he appeals to their professional, their civic, and their religious pride. You can see that in what he says. William Larkin in his commentary says this, any Christianity worth its salt will be a challenge to the pocketbook, to the flag, and to the shrine. So Demetrius is stirring people up by speaking not just to the pocketbook, but to the flag, as it were, and to the shrine, to the civics, and to the religious His speech reveals that Jesus and the gospel are threatening. Have you ever thought about that? Again, a message of good news for the world is also a threatening message. It threatens the religious. We read earlier in in Acts 5 about how preaching Jesus threatened Jews the men and women and children who had the Hebrew scriptures are threatened. Stephen, in Acts 7, he's preaching and he's stoned by his countrymen. In Corinth, in Acts 18, we see a Roman proconsul protect Paul and others from a mob of Jews. Jesus and the gospel are threatening. And where's where's the pressure point? Where's the center of gravity? Well, it's it's idolatry. It's idolatry. Um, We heard Psalm 115 read earlier. 
I want to take us just to a few verses in Psalm 135. See if this sounds familiar. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those that make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Martin Luther, in his large catechism, says this, Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. What your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. No matter what you may say. Luther's on to something. And a little bit later, another reformer of the church, Calvin, in his institute said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's nature can be translated out of the Latin a little bit into his heart. His heart is a factory of idols. Calvin's on to something. Calvin's recognizing that behind the external is the internal. That's where the problem is, the internal. And in in his introduction to counterfeit gods, Timothy Keller writes this. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I know I'll have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe this kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. The grace and peace postcard. To be human is to worship. Who or what are you worshiping? What a great diagnostic question for all of us. Prone to wander, wander away, away from God to something else, to someone else. The idolatry that's being addressed here is not just the idolatry of the the pagan temple. He's concerned about wealth. They're concerned about Finances, security, satisfaction. Demetrius, again, he's named, is worried, and he is afraid. And because of that, he is motivated to take action. You see, worry and fear characterize non-believers. Because those people trust primarily in themselves. They, They trust idols. And they are worried and they are afraid that something's going to happen to them. And yet, for a believer, for someone who has been, who is lost and Jesus has come to them, who has been found, as that person has a, is united to Christ by faith. What they have less and less is they have less fear 
less worry and instead have a quiet, humble confidence and contentment. Demetrius and the crowd he is stirring up is worried and afraid and we've got to do something. That's why earlier I said there's really no such thing as a Christian mob because mobs are like afraid of something. They're, They're trying to keep something from being taken from them. Not so the Christian. Why? Because we have all things we need in Christ. In Christ. Now, the speech of Demetrius is wildly successful in that it stirs up the crowd and whips them into an enraged mob ready to take action to preserve their way of life that they believe is being threatened by the way. That is the new life that is given by Jesus and the new lifestyle that's guided by the gospel. Let's look at Act 2, the confusion of the crowd. I'm going to read verses 28 through 34. When they heard this, that is the speech of of, uh, uh, Demetrius, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Astarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I haven't seen the, 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 the play of this or the, the, the movie, but it's got to be out there somewhere. You can just imagine the crowd, the chaos, the confusion, uh, mob rule. Look at verse 32. In the midst of this, there's some humor. Most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> why am I here? Isn't that the nature of the crowd? I mean, you just follow the crowd Why? Because you see somebody else going and you really have no idea what you're doing. Why are you there? Now, it might be humorous. I mean, chaos, confusion. Why are we here? Hey, look, there's Joe. There's Susie. We're all out together. But this is deadly serious. It's mob rule. You know, there was a crowd once that despite evidence before them, giving them the opportunity to have an innocent man released and a criminal stay in jail, what did they say of the innocent man? Crucify him. Crucify him. The deadly, serious nature, environment, atmosphere of crowds that turn into mobs. And yet, Paul is protected here by unnamed people, the disciples and his friends, the Asiarchs. Who are they? 
and they're leading citizens, prominent members of the Provincial Council of Asia. You see, God is sovereign, and God uses both believers and unbelievers to accomplish his purposes. I was talking to somebody the other day about, he's been reading the Bible and and just amazed at the sovereignty of God and how God rules, and he sets kings up, and he takes kings down, and, and it's everywhere in Scripture. God is sovereign. God can use anything. He uses believers, he uses unbelievers to accomplish his purposes. And both say to Paul, don't go. Don't go into the crowd. You know, it's like Ecclesiastes. There's a time to stop and a time to go, a time to stay and a time to leave, a time to step out and a time to hide. And what's the answer? It depends. It depends. Now, that expression makes some people a bit nervous, doesn't it? Because you see, different situations require different responses. We've already seen that in Paul's ministry thus far. You see, sometimes there's not a one-size-fits-all garment. Rather, the garment has to be tailor-made for the particular situation. What we're seeing with this crowd is is opposition to the gospel that is not sincere nor reasonable. It's intellectually and spiritually completely closed off to the truth and it's concerned with nothing but a power play. Paul enjoys reasoning with people. He wants to persuade, but not with this crowd. You can't do it. You see, Paul would be foolish to go into the crowd, and some of the disciples and his friends recognized that, and they kept him back. Proverbs 26, 4 makes a great statement. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So if somebody's foolish, don't answer them, right? What's the next verse say? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, which is it? Do you answer a fool or do you not answer a fool? Guess what, my friends? It takes wisdom. It takes wisdom. It's not necessarily black and white. It takes wisdom to know and There are times, and this is being made clear, there are times in which Christians should not make themselves accessible for evil purposes. It's never an act of love to make it easy for someone else to sin against you. And what friends Paul had, friends that loved him, the disciples, who are they? People that have become believers. Who are these Asiarchs? We don't know, but they're prominent leading men. And they both know Paul's a Roman citizen. Paul, you don't want to get mixed up in this. Paul stays out. He doesn't go into the crowd. Notice, just for that fact, the realism, the accuracy of Luke's writing. Because wouldn't this be a great time to make up a story of Paul stepping out into the crowd and, and speaking and preaching 
and to see many people converted? Luke's an accurate historian. He's recording what happened. And so, kids, this is so important. Christian, you see Peter scared and running. You see Paul being lowered in a basket to get out of town. Christianity is not, it, is, is not us being strong and perfect and doing everything right. No, there is one who is strong and perfect and does everything right. And it's, and it's faith in him. It's the kids. He is what? Well, wait, how's it go? I am weak, but he is strong. What great theology there is in that! And what encouragement! He even throws in Alexander. What, what's Alexander doing? Uh, we think that he's being put out there because the Jews want to say, "Hey, don't get mad at us. We're Jews. You can get mad at these followers of this Jesus of Nazareth." But don't mess with us. But nothing happened. The crowd, just with one voice, said, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This Alexander just didn't get to make his speech. And why is that in there? It's in there because it's, it happened. There should be great encouragement to us to, to, to the trustworthiness of God's word. It doesn't present some sanitized, beautiful Everything happens wonderfully for Christians. Notice how this section opens. And notice how this section ends. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine that being said for two hours straight? So, before we move on from the crowd, I want to ask us... uh, Do we ever find ourselves in a crowd literally or metaphorically and we don't know why we're there? All of us that are older and adults remember those days when we were told, hey, don't follow the crowd, right? Just because they're doing it doesn't mean you need to do it, right? Be purposeful. Know what you believe, why you believe it, what you believe is right, what you believe is wrong. Kids, It's so important because the crowd in the 1970s and 80s when I was growing up is the crowd now. Do you find yourself in a crowd? Do you want to be in a crowd and you're like, why am I here? Ask your parents. Ask for their wisdom. Ask for their help. The mentality of the crowd is often up to no good. So how's this crisis going to be resolved? For two hours, with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Luke adds an exclamation point. How is it going to be resolved? It's going to be resolved through the clear thinking of a clerk. Let's uh, pick up reading in verse 35. And And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. 
If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The unnamed town clerk, the chief administrative officer of the city, the the liaison that's the go-between between the city council and the, the Roman proconsul, the Roman governing authorities. And what does the town clerk say? Well, he makes a, a speech that is as brilliant as it is ultimately successful in persuasion. He first addresses what can't be denied. He basically says accurately what they believe about their city, and the temple. But then he cut through the veneer of civic and religious pride and he directly addresses the real concern. Remember the real concern? Hey, if people follow this Paul guy, their life is going to change and they're not going to be coming to the temple anymore and buying our trinkets and buying our silverware, so to speak. And it's going to hit us in the pocketbook. The town clerk, is he knows what's going on. Yeah, he, he pays a little bit of attention to the civic pride, the religious pride, but he gets right to the heart. If you've got a concern, take it to the courts. There's a way to settle these grievances. But the bottom line, he says, this is what you ought to do. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Boy, if I could listen to that kind of counsel all the time, I would save myself a lot of trouble. How about you? You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. I wish I had thought about that when I was about 10. Great counsel. And why should you do this? Because there are ways available to rightly address your concerns. Don't take it into your own hands. Don't be violent. Because make no mistake, had Paul gone into this crowd, that may have been the end of Paul. And he recognizes that what is before him in the city, in this theater that we believe holds up to 25,000 people, it's an unlawful assembly. And it, and it risks bringing the attention of the Romans. And the Romans would not be really um, pleased with a city that kind of wants to rule itself becoming out of control. Because he... The town clerk recognizes that this Christianity is not contrary to the rule of law, nor disruptive to the public order. And look how it ends. You know, what does he say? He says, uh, what, uh, be, be uh, quiet. What does he do? He dismissed the assembly. Here's an expert in crowd control. As a town clerk. He's very much like Gamaliel in Acts 5 that we read about. Remember Acts 5? Remember what we heard earlier? We read about how um, we saw, where is it? Uh, yeah, 
So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow him. You might even be found opposing God. I mean, that's the Jewish version. Here's the the Gentile pagan version. It's pretty much the same thing. Uh, Stop. Otherwise, the Romans are going to get involved and we're going to find ourselves fighting against Rome. It's much like Galileo Galileo in Acts 18, the Roman proconsul, when the Jews made a united attack on Paul. Luke is helping us understand that Christianity wasn't illegal. It, It posed no threat to the civic order. Opposition was purely personal. The Lord, you see, alone protects his people. But he uses various means. And and here we see that he uses an unnamed administrative official, notice, committed to the truth. Committed to the truth. You know, Francis Schaeffer rightly said, all truth is God's truth. Not just the truth of the gospel, but the truth of the law of gravity, the truth of a definition of a circle, the truth of two plus two equals four. All truth is God's truth. And the the church here is protected and preserved because a town clerk tells the truth. My friends, as Christians and as a church, we should be big proponents of the civil society telling the truth because it's ultimately good for the church. So where have you seen God protect you from threats? Not only from the outside, but from the inside. I'm reminded as I read through New Morning Mercies, uh, Paul Tripp reminds us often from Scripture of our, own, our ongoing need for God to rescue us from ourselves. Yes, we are saints. Yes, we are sufferers and evil comes at us from the outside. But oh my goodness, how much evil still comes from us on the inside. How has God protected you recently? How has God preserved you? So ends Act 3, and with that the crisis has been resolved. Uh, Though he is not named, nor is he visibly present, God has protected his people. What encouragement. What basis for confidence we should have when especially we can't see God at work it doesn't mean he's not at work let's wrap up by asking just a couple of questions why does Luke write Acts why does Luke write Acts in the first book Old Theophilus chapter 1 verse 1 I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach Well, what was his first book? Luke. And how does the gospel according to Luke begin? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also 
having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Why does Luke write Acts? Why is Acts written? So that we would have an orderly account of all that Jesus continued to do and teach now through his spirit in the church founded by the apostles so that we could have certainty. But let's back up. Why was scripture written? Why was scripture written? Well, we could answer that by saying what the scriptures principally teach. That being what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. But let's hear from the man in the middle of the narrative account, the man who was protected by the mob, by both his Christian and his non-Christian friends, the Apostle Paul. He writes toward the ends of Romans, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. We might have hope. Certainty, confidence that God is at work. God can be trusted. God can use various means to preserve his people, to protect his people. My friends, we are evidence that that is absolutely true. You know how that passage continues. Paul writes, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. My friends, may God be pleased to give his people all around the world and here at Grace and Peace one heart so that together with one voice, we will not shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians or whatever else. Great is our country. Great is our denomination. Great is our skill. What, fill in the blank. No. So that together with one voice, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us to the glory of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, though we have not seen you, we love you. Though we do not see you now, we believe in you and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And filled with glory because, Father, thanks to you and the work of the Son and the, the applying business of the Holy Spirit, we are obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Oh, Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for sending us a Savior who is not only strong, but who is kind. For we rest in him and we pray in his name. Amen.